This is Daniel Fagelli, and you're listening to the AI in Business podcast. We talk a lot about AI maturity here on the show. We talk about what it looks like when companies become more AI ready and get their data infrastructure and their talent right. But there's a sort of meta topic here around where does AI sit within a business? How does AI make its way in and then how does it expand to become a real living, breathing part of an enterprise as opposed to a flimsy little side project or a centralized effort to get better at something? Well, as it turns out, the process AI might go through in big enterprises is somewhat similar to the process that the internet had to go through. And our guest this week has seen the internet boom and is now riding the AI boom. Monty Zwebin was doing artificial intelligence with NASA in the late 80s and took a company public for nearly $3 billion in the height of the very frothy internet boom back in the late 90s, a company called Blue Martini Software. Now he's founder and CEO of Splice Machine. Splice Machine offers a scalable SQL data platform for modernizing applications. Monty speaks with us this week about some of the sort of mirrored elements of the past transitions of tech into AI and what they mean for how AI will start to make its way into becoming the norm in the enterprises. There was a time when the internet had its own department and now of course the internet is everywhere, internal and external in almost all enterprises, any substantial ones certainly. How is AI gonna get to the same place? Well, I think Monty paints a pretty compelling vision and also applies a couple of lessons learned from his previous business transitions into what leaders can do to better prepare for this next wave of AI and to do better than some of the firms that missed the wave on the internet. So uh, lessons learned from the past, the cutting edge of the present, that's exactly what we want to have on a podcast. And big thanks to Monty for being able to join us. Without further ado, this is Monty with Splice Machine here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Monty, we're going to fly in and talk about this topic of the maturity of AI in the enterprise. And you've seen a lot of tech transitions in the past. The first dynamic that I know we're seeing, and you're probably seeing even closer, is AI beginning in pockets. You know, we joke that we jump into these big banks or life sciences firms where we do our market research, and what's happening is popcorn projects. This, these guys got some budget. These guys got some budget. We spun up something here. Sometimes we spun up the same darn thing in a couple different departments or geo regions. And now we're starting to see things congeal towards a platform. Hey, we're going to share our learnings. We're going to share our algorithms. Let's talk first about that transition. How do you see that happening in the enterprise today? Yeah, Dan, that, thanks for having me, by the of course, way. Of course, of course. Glad yep, to have you here. Definitely a, it's definitely a trend, and it's a, it's a clear indication of maturity in, in, a, in a marketplace. Everyone lit up their little Jupyter notebooks and used a few different algorithms, and passed around data, usually in files, and these these little pockets emerged. But quickly in AI, and I've been doing AI for a very long time now. I used to run NASA's AI lab and seen AI emerge from um, the old days of of doing uh, AI before machine learning, all the way through to the big data architecture. Yeah, you were in the eighties, huh? I mean, back before this stuff was, was cool, I, you were I, doing it, Monty. So I mean, I was starting this stuff in the eighties. It was the a great days, time. Yeah. We put the first expert system in space and actually used uh, AI for the space shuttle and the space telescope and planetary rovers. It was a great time, but now everything's changed. And the, the change is clear because we understand that the predictive capability of machine learning is fundamentally focused on the data, not necessarily the algorithm. So as the pockets emerged, 
everyone can handle a little bit of data. They download some things from Kaggle or they get some files off of their um, customer data sets and they would perform their, their modeling and, and get some good experimental results. But what everyone realized is that to really put AI into operation in production, you needed a stronger data infrastructure. And so as everyone realized that, the, the skill sets to glue together the components necessary to do productive AI, operational AI, you needed to have distributed system people, people who knew how to deal with systems where data was shared or, or distributed across multiple computers. And that was certainly not in the pockets anymore. Yeah. You needed to have a centralized skill set to do that. And that's what led to the, I'll call it the siloization of AI and big data into the quote unquote big data group to form that infrastructure necessary for people to literally have enough data to pursue uh, operational AI. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So the siloization and you know, we talked to folks that have been in the game since kind of a little bit before AI was cool here when, however long ago, people just kind of threw everything into Hadoop and said, hey, we have kind of big data now, and now now we're going to end up trying to use it. You know, hopefully we've learned some lessons from, from that period. But as we start to see these pockets realize, hey, there's got to be a common infrastructure, there needs to be some level of access, we need to be able to, like you said, put this stuff into production. We can have some interesting technical debt that might be able to do some tricks at the corners, but unless this is plugged into how we actually operate the business, it's going to be tough to wrangle it together. There's folks that really think that platforms, in the same way that you know ERP or CRMs, are going to just naturally and have to become the way enterprises pull this off. What's your nuance on that statement, or, or how would you frame that maybe a little bit more accurately? Yeah, I agree with the platform mentality, but with a little bit of a spin on it. So first, as you said, the first generation of the big data architecture that was leveraged by the data science community was this on-premise set of disparate compute engines and storage engines that was left up to the data scientists to kind of glue together in a smart way. And um, those were very complex to operate. And slowly but surely, it became clear that cloud-based alternatives were going to be a lot easier for the data scientists. And you see these cloud services now that are starting to take over some of those big data responsibilities. And little by little, you're starting to see some platformization of this, like you said, but the platforms still are kind of in pockets. You got, you've got some data warehousing capabilities, vendors like Snowflake out there doing very well for a very specific type of workload. And then you've got big batch data science from vendors like Databricks out there being able to do that. And you've got real-time operational databases that may come from key value stores, maybe from cloud vendors like Amazon's Dynamo or Microsoft's Cosmo or even Redis and things like that. But now, it got it's still up to the data scientists and the machine learning engineers to glue all these things together. So I started my company to take away that pain. And we built a platform for operational real-time AI that would merge those three types of workloads into one platform. And that I think is a picture that was 
really presented in my mind from my ex- personal experience when I was chairman and CEO for a little while of a company called Rocket Fuel. Very familiar with Rocket Fuel, yeah. yeah. Rocket Fuel had a 65 petabyte HBase cluster that was tightly integrated with Spark. We ran TensorFlow models in the end before we sold the company. It was a tremendous infrastructure. I had hundreds of engineers of seniority, PhDs, master's students, who were gluing this infrastructure together. Well, my perspective of platform is that that was too much of a P&L expense. And I think there's a way to lower that expense so that companies that may not have the talent available to them that are advanced distributed system engineers, they should be able to glue together analytical workloads, operational workloads, and machine learning workloads just a lot easier. So that's my take on the platform perspective of where the future is taking us. Yeah, got it, got it. Okay, cool. And, and um, clearly, I mean, you have a dog in this fight. Obviously, you guys have founded a, a firm to approach this space. Do you foresee a world where there is that rich, you know, as far as I know, now I, I could be wrong here, there's a lot of firms that they've got Salesforce as their CRM, and they don't have like two or three other CRMs, but they might have some outside peripheral sales tools that feed into Salesforce or some things that tack onto Salesforce. Similarly, in this kind of data infrastructure platform ecosystem, do you foresee some sort of a core place where let's say, you know, I'm going to use a term which maybe this won't hold into the future, but a place where our algorithms live, you know, like, oh, this is where we put them. This is where they go, you know, one, one place. And then sort of, you know, the, there's storage stuff might happen over here and other stuff might happen over here, but, but there's, there's one place where it kind of lives. Is there, is there a better analogy? I'm sure there is, by the way, than the Salesforce one that I gave where there's stuff above it and below it, but it's kind of, it's still the home. Is that the way I that you see platforms or yeah, go ahead. I, I'm with you on this and I, I don't think it's the algorithm layer, but I think it's really close. Okay. I think it's the, what we in machine learning typically call the feature level, right? I think that the raw data that's in data warehouses and in data lakes are constantly transformed into usable summary of behavior, behavior of customers in customer-facing applications, behavior of transactions in financial services areas, behavior of physical assets in industrial settings and utilities and telecommunication companies. And these features are what feed the models. Yeah. And I believe there's a centralized platform for these features that are continuously updated, kept real time, kept fresh, searchable, discoverable, so that everybody in the enterprise can leverage those features in the models of their choice. Yeah. And I think that's where the the centralization is going to come in. Okay, curious. Um, and, and I guess I being a little bit more in the, uh, we call the business strategy side than, than, you know, putting my, writing the Python myself, I think I probably have less of a firm stake there, but I can see the plausibility. It's, it's clearly very ambitious, right? This idea that we'll have features that'll hold over time, right? Because the business evolves. 
right? What, you know, seasonality used to be big for all our product lines and now it only is relevant for like two of them. You know, we, we, we open up a new product line every X number of months and do those use the same ontology or do the features have to be rebuilt based on what customers actually respond yeah, to? Great these question. dynamics, right. uh, these ontology typology, like there's businesses in the life sciences space. We do a lot with life sciences and you know, those whole companies that are selling like on a license, an almost infinitely structured wild ontology of how you can sort and stack and subcategorize chemicals and, and molecules and whatever else. And clearly within a company, if we want to get wild, we can do the same thing. So clearly people are going to have to get better at that skill to bring the vision you're talking about to life. Modeling, but, is, yeah. modeling is going to have to improve. There's no yeah. doubt about it. But there is there is reusability. We see it every day. Um, just to give some business examples. Great, great. Right? Please do. I love examples. Um, so one business example in customer-facing businesses, it's quite clear that analysts everywhere in consumer-facing businesses take transactional purchase history and turn it into recency, frequency, and monetary value summaries of how people buy, right? Yep. It's classic. I mean, it's been well, going on since way before data science, right? The, exactly. The direct right? marketing people sending stuff in the mail, yeah. Exactly. So if you know how to break down purchasing information into the recency of purchasing in a particular category or by a particular brand, the frequency by which you do so, your average transactions, maybe monthly, those features are going to be used by people in marketing. They'll be used by people in merchandising. They'll be used by people in customer service um, who are building models. They're just ubiquitous. Yeah. features that are utilized uh, for everyone around the business. And on the healthcare side, you used a great example there, thinking about life sciences. Our customers is pooling together real world objective population data in the neurology space. Data like how well patients walk and measuring the actual velocity and pressure of their footsteps. Jeez. Data about their cognitive capabilities, like in terms of awareness, uh, memory, attention, executive function, and also data about their brains, the volume changes in white and gray matter. And, and all of this is done through standard tests out there. But it turns out that coming up with features like how many of your cognitive domains are deficient by a couple of standards of deviations off of normal um, that is a feature that's used in models that are predicting the trajectory of multiple sclerosis, but it's also something that might be used in another neurological disease like Parkinson's. It might actually be a feature even used in cardiology. And so building these real-time data repositories of, of customer profiles, of features, I think will become... Um, gold to yeah. these companies to leverage all across the, the enterprise. And technically, we call those feature stores yep. at the technical level, yep. but um, they're platforms. They're just platforms to inform the business. Yeah. I, uh, again, see tremendous plausibility in, in where you're getting. Clearly, there are many very reusable elements of, of a lot of businesses. There's some that are really wishy-washy and might change, but there's some where we could feel confident for a decade, you know, this is going to be handy to have on hand. It seems to me, and I've, we've got one more question for you, but I want to flesh this one out. It seems to me as though we're going to need our data science folks and our subject matter experts to both really understand 
both sides of the fence in order to define features. Because features, you got to understand data and what's going to be relevant in terms of data, but you have to understand the business and what lets us make decisions. So it feels like to, to put that library together, we need both sides of the table to have enough osmosis to develop confidence in these doggone ontologies. I mean, this is a cultural shift here to make this really work. It's a cultural shift. And it's a cultural shift that is going to go on two sides of the coin. As we mentioned earlier, there's a centralization of this data. But unfortunately, there's also a silo of people that utilize that data today. In most companies, we find there's a data science team. Yep. Anything that has to do with machine learning and data science now is sort of asked of this team. And this team is overwhelmed. But where things are moving is the democratization of machine learning, where the business, like you said, that understands what these features are and how they impact the business are going to um, start to use machine learning as a tool on an everyday basis. And we're starting to see that empowerment in the line of business. And this is much like a, a previous technology trend. Some of your listeners may remember when the web just emerged. I was right in the heart of that um, when we were building e-commerce platforms with machine learning. And in the beginning, in the early 2000s, you know, whenever there was something to do with the web, the internet, there was this central organization that everything had to flow through. And of course, it became a bottleneck. And today, every organization within a company, a customer service organization, a marketing organization, perhaps even the product people themselves that are delivering product features as web services, they all have web skills. Yeah, The same thing is going to happen now. Machine learning is going to move from this centralized data science group, and it's going to move into the line of business. And what's that going to do? It's exactly what you said. It's going to empower these teams that have data science people in the line of business. In an insurance company, they may be um, a couple of data scientists working with the folks in the marketing organization, a couple of data scientists working with folks in claims, maybe a couple of data scientists working in the team on underwriting. Yeah. And they'll all have knowledge of the business that they're in. And they'll all have access to the central platform of features yeah. to build their models. That's where yeah. I think things are going. I, I think it's plausible. One of our technical advisors is very high up in machine learning at HubSpot, one of our rare little Boston unicorns here, uh, and sort of paints us a, a somewhat of a similar vision of this idea of democratization. So this is being our last question. I want to flesh out a little bit more of your, your vision here. You saw this up close and personal on the web. There's this idea today of, you know, particularly in banking, financial services, at least is where, where we probably hear it the most, the center of excellence for AI, right? And, and hey, you know, we got to start somewhere, right? I mean, we have a whole company founded 280 years ago. Let's go ahead and have a cluster of people that get AI. Like, nice, that's progress, right? But at some point, like you said, lending, customer service, fraud and anti-money laundering, it's not going to be the central AI team that jumps in and solves everybody else's problems. It will be dispersed into you know, tech writ large. How is this transition going to transpire? You know, The things I wonder about for, for our listeners are, does it make sense for us to pull things together and at least get a couple wins under our belt before that dispersion? What's the right time for that dispersion? How's that going to look? I love the your idea of how the, the future will be cast here, Monty, because I think this is, yeah, I this think is big stuff for the industry. This is a cultural change. 
organizationally. It's also a cultural change for those business units. And it's a really interesting journey. You're right. Centers of excellence are great. I call them launch pads. Yep. Launch and pad. you there build this little launch pad that has a different culture. As you know, through all the guests that you've talked to at the business level of AI, the culture of data science, machine learning, and AI in general is a culture of experimentation. Yes. Right? It's not like a machine learning model goes live once and then you never touch it again. This is, this is the it's, hard stuff, isn't it? This it's is nurtured, yep. right? You're yep. continuously experimenting and improving. And that culture is inculcated into that launch pad. And that launch pad delivers a model or two in production to a line of business. And then a few people from the line of business work in that launch pad team. And then they return back after that apprenticeship into their line of business. And they start to be able to do it themselves, leveraging some of the technology underpinnings that the Center of Excellence or Launchpad had. But now they're an autonomous group leveraging centralized feature stores and leveraging centralized machine learning infrastructure. But now they are able to do what the Launchpad team did. They've transferred that skill set and they've inculcated now the risk group or the credit group or the underwriting group or whomever whomever that line of business is with this culture of experimentation as well. Yes. And you slowly see this roll out over a year or two in an enterprise and suddenly you've taken an old school enterprise that leverages technology in sort of a centralized way turning that into the intelligent enterprise where each business unit has their core skill sets that know the business know the technology and have inculcated a, or adopted a culture of experimentation. Yeah. Yeah. The, the AI maturity stuff is so much more than the data infrastructure, right? We talk about skills, culture, resources, and the, the data and the data info would be in the resource side, but man, there's a lot of other things that have to change. So this, this launch pad to your point is going to be doing the technology leveling up and skill training, but, but also the cultural inculcation of how this stuff has to work. Do you think they're going to eventually disperse and there will be no more central node or will there be a node that kind of maybe still handles some of the internal training in some of the other departments and still handles maybe has like the, the kind of ultimate ownership over certain kinds of data assets or, or whatnot? Do, do you still see something remaining there? I think it'll look more like a DevOps team. It'll look more like a, a continuous service that's a utility. It'll be a data and machine learning infrastructure utility that's available for everyone to consume. Just like water and electricity in homes and municipalities, enterprises will have data and ML infrastructure utilities that teams will support. Uh, but the, the actual science, it'll take place in the line of business. Yeah. Wow. You know, we're obviously quite a ways from, from there, even in the great US of A here. But I think the trajectory seems seems pretty promising. As we part here, Marty, you know, you got to see people do it well in the internet and not do it well, right? You went through all the bus stuff. You know, you guys had some great big wins with some of your previous organizations. If people look you up on LinkedIn, they'll they'll understand how long you've been in this game here. You know, are there any lessons from those trajectories in the past of who won, who didn't, who 
adopted kind of the culture and the skill stuff to, to, to work nimbly in the new future and who didn't. What's some parting advice from a strategy perspective's kind of lens for the leaders that are going to watch this transition happen that you're talking about? Yeah, I think that the parting advice, you know, looking away from the technology platform and the kind of business that we're in, but taking a much more global perspective of what's challenging to the global 2000, I think the hardest part isn't going to be the technology infrastructure that we and many of the people in the space provide. The hardest part is getting the management teams to understand that a culture of experimentation is a, a necessary transition. And to start that transition of thought leadership in each of the business units and create that design thinking, no fear in failing, that structured experimentation yep. of A-B testing, and you know, make that part of the business, whether or not it has to do with machine learning make that mentality be part of the business because the machine learning is going to require it. And that's kind of, uh, I think, something that we've, we've learned in the past. We learned that from the web too. Um, we've learned in you know, web experiences and, and product-led growth and software as a service, we've learned that the companies that have uh, a rapid testing mentality are the ones that win. And if that testing mentality can be transitioned into these business units, along with the transition of the AI technology, I think that'll accelerate the transition. Hopefully some, some lessons that our listeners will be taking seriously on that cultural side. Uh, Monty, we're, we're certainly trying to beat that drum on our end, on media, on newsletters, on you name it, to try to make sure that some of that shift happens so people are ready. But your insights matter a lot. So thank you so much for being able to join us here on the show today. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. And if I can um, also maybe take this opportunity to invite your podcast listeners to listen to my very focused and maybe a little bit more technologically oriented podcast called mlminutes.com, where we talk about just how people have deployed machine learning in very successful ways. That would be fantastic. I really appreciate what you do for the uh, industry and bringing forth a, a business perspective of AI. And I really thank you for letting me attend your uh, podcast and, and your um, discussion today was really a lot of fun. Cool. Well, yeah, hopefully we got some technical folks that'll check out your guys' stuff as well. And again, thanks so much for being able to be with us. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. Thank you to Monty for being with us, and thank you to you for listening all the way through. We talked a lot about adopting artificial intelligence and what it will look like to fruitfully adopt AI in the years ahead. If you are in a place of action, you're an innovation leader, a strategy leader, or a consultant who has to guide enterprises, you may want to check out Emerge Plus. This is where we have a whole library of best practices around AI adoption and ROI. You'll have frameworks and simple tools to be able to apply the AI best practices of the companies that are doing AI well in your organization or for that of your clients. You'll also get access to our full AI use case library. And again, you can find all of that at Emerge Plus. You can go to www.emerj.com slash P 
one that's p like plus and then the number one to learn more about emerge plus in addition to the entire use case library we also have available the entirety of our ai white paper library as well where you can get up to speed fast on anything from ai and retail to the fundamentals of natural language processing and beyond so emerj.com p1 check it out but otherwise i look forward to catching you here on the next episode here on the ai and business podcast